If you've got a Bible, open up to two passages of Scripture. One's going to be Matthew 5, and the other is going to be Genesis chapter 3. Matthew chapter 5, and then Genesis, the third chapter. One of the great blessings that I've had growing up in the family that I've grown up in is uh, the blessing of laughter. And uh, our home had a whole lot in it. Um, My mom's mom in particular, uh, we called her Granny. One of the things I remember most about her is just her, she just had a great laugh. I mean, you know when some people laugh, you don't quite know if they're laughing. That was not her. I mean, when she really got going, she really got going. She, she passed that on to my mom, and my mom has a great laugh, and, and, uh, and my mom brought some humor into our home. We, we sometimes don't laugh about the same things, but, um, but my mom's got a great sense of humor. And uh, I remember all of us, family, my, my mom and my mom's mom, and all at my grandma's house, my granny's house, and we just got the biggest kick out of a comedian. You may, you may remember about 20 years ago, he burst onto the scene and he began to make these uh, really uh, unique observations. He, he really only had one joke, but it was a pretty good joke. It was the observations under this banner, you might be a redneck if. Now, one of the reasons we found it so funny is because we're full-blooded redneck in my family, okay? Just, I just want you to know that ahead of time, got it from both sides. My mom and my dad were, were, were full-blooded. And, and uh, at one point, we were sitting at my granny's house, and um, this comedian, you know, his name Jeff Foxworthy. He's all over the TV now doing something about cakes and whatnot. So, anyway, I, I don't have his voice, so the delivery's not near as good. But he said some things like this, you might be a redneck if you prefer car keys to Q-tips. I thought that was pretty funny. You might be a redneck if you've ever used a weed eater indoors. Or if you use the term over yonder more than once a month. Or if you've ever mowed your grass and found a car. (laughs) Or if your wife has ever said, come move the transmission so I can take a bath. That um, we could go on, we won't. You can you can look him up on uh, online or whatnot if you want to. But um, in Matthew chapter five, Jesus is showing us you you might be a Christian if, and then he gives eight observations. Now now a really healthy theology to possess is. What does Jesus say is true of a Christian? Then take what he says and then examine your life and see if those things are true. Bad theology would be take some man-centered traditions, adopt those, and then tell Jesus that you're a Christian. Better idea is to see what he says is true because he's the one who knows. He's the one who measures. He's the one who knows the heart, who knows what's true when no one else is is around. It'd be a tragedy to spend your life saying that you're a Christian, but basing them on things that Jesus never mentioned. So what does he say is true of a Christian? And if you look in Matthew chapter 5, he begins in verse 3. Well, actually, let's start in verse 1 with me. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. So just know from the get-go, there's a distinction being made when Jesus is teaching between two groups of people. He sees the crowds, but then his disciples draw near. So if you get the picture, the disciples are drawing near to him by stepping out of the what? The crowds, right? Large group of people are there, yes, but the disciples are the one who draw near to hear what he has to say. And he opened up his mouth and taught them. Who's the them referring to? The disciples. 
Blessed, here's the first mark, if you, if, you know you're a Christian, if. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And as we mentioned last week in the summer Sundays, we're doing a spinoff series talking about the God-centered life. And a God-centered life begins with this statement. That's why we keep coming back to it. So, so we keep seeing what Jesus says is, Blessed are the poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom. And last week we gave this illustration that we're used to, uh, for example, in an auction, if something's up for bid, the bid goes to who? The highest bidder. If somebody's selling a car, you hear the auction, and it starts at $3,000, who's going to get the car? Not the person who bids the first bid, the person who gets the last bid, and the last bid is the highest dollar figure. And Jesus is saying the kingdom of God works the exact opposite. When God says, here's the kingdom of God, and the first person shows up and says, well, I've been a good person my whole life. I've attended church my whole life. I've given to, uh, to, to worthy charities my whole life. I've helped other people my whole life. I've, I've, I've done all these good things. The Bible has a name for that person. He's called the rich young ruler. And Jesus looked at him and said, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. And then, and then he go on down the list and somebody says, well, I haven't lived quite their life, but I've done some things. And then who does the kingdom of God belong to? The person who, when it says, here's the kingdom of God, stands up and says, I have absolutely nothing to offer. I've got nothing, nothing to bring to the table. And that's the person God looks at and says, sold. You, yours is the kingdom. Now, it's not that no one has anything to offer. It's that we don't have anything to offer and Christ has everything to offer. The poor in spirit are those who say, I don't bring anything to the table. I'm trusting Christ. I'm trusting him for my righteousness. I'm trusting him for my good works and so on and, and so forth. What he's saying in this statement is that there is none so good that they need not be saved. And there are none so bad that they cannot be saved. Both are equally true in Christ Jesus. Now, how are we get, given this blessed privilege of understanding how poor in spirit we really are? The answer is not by comparing ourselves to one another. Again, that's the comparison trap. The, the, the key to understanding how poor in spirit we are is by looking at God and what He's like and what He's done and what He said and who He is. And we're starting that in Genesis, or picking up with that in Genesis 3. So we're going to pick right up where we left off last night. In these summer months, excuse me, these summer weeks, I'll touch that holds the most allure for us. And it still seems to be that way today. And then at the end of chapter 2, verse 24, it says, God, talking about marriage, says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So they have this wonderful marriage. They've got a marriage that's everything a marriage is supposed to be. And now look at the very next verse. Now in your eye, when you look down at the scripture, you're going to see a break. Right, Because chapters and verses were added later, but in the, in the original, there's no break. There's a wonderful marriage, and then what happens? Then the serpent comes along. One application we can take from this, I believe, is that nothing threatens the serpent more than a man and a woman who are committed to the kind of marriage that's given in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. Uh, another easy application is you can always measure the spiritual temperament and temperature, if you will, of a culture by what they say about marriage. So Genesis 3 one says the serpent comes along and he's more crafty than any beast of the field. And he begins to engage the woman in the original temptation. We don't aim to repeat everything that we said last week, but it's important to get a few 
thoughts down because the temptation, y'all, right, is not eat an apple. That's not the temptation. If you get a children's Bible out and they always will show Eve and she's holding an apple, that's not quite the, the, the temptation. The temptation comes along, verse 3, excuse me, verse 1, the serpent said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And so the whole temptation begins by kind of calling into question what God said and by calling into question God's character. Because the, the serpent's sneaky, he's deceptive, he's subtle, he's serpent-like. He's crafty. When he wants to bring about the first rebellion, he doesn't do a frontal assault. He comes around the back corner and just makes a small, simple, little bitty tiny suggestion. And it's kind of full of sarcasm. You ever around sarcastic people? Sarcasm and godliness rarely go together. Did God actually say? It's, it's, it's dripping with meaning, right? And what's the meaning? God's holding out on you. God's, God's withholding something that really would be better if you had it. He's a killjoy. He's a, he's a cosmic party pooper. No, no whispering about the thousand trees you can eat from. Just whispering about the one tree you, you can't eat from. Why can't you eat from it? In the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. You'll notice he won't say that. In fact, God said you eat of it, you'll die. He comes along and says eat of it and you'll really live. And that's always the deception of sin. So if I eat it, if I take it, if I participate in it, if I make it a part of my life, there'll be freedom in it. And it's not. It's not so. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the tree in the garden. Okay, going okay so far. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now we read 2, 16 and 17, and God never said anything about not actually touching it. But you get a little image of what's going on in her thought process because she's begun to portray God. She's begun to portray God as limiting. He said, we can't even touch it. Can't even go near it. And all the serpent needs is a little toehold. Gets a toehold, he'll grab a foothold, he grabs a foothold, he's going for the stronghold. That's the, that's the pattern of sin. Whether it's pornography that we talked about a few weeks ago, whether it's adultery, whether it's lying, whether it's stealing, it always starts a little, little bit. Real fast, there's no such thing as a little bit of sin. It's always big. That's the main thing we learn from this text. Uh, so... The serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. He began by questioning the word of God. He's come back now by totally uh, lying about the word of God. And notice again the first doctrine in the Bible that is lied about is the doctrine of judgment. Because the devil, he's crafty and he knows this simple fact. If I can take away the threat of judgment... Not take it away as in it actually won't happen, but if I can convince people that there is no judgment, then man, all bets are off, so to speak. So say, oh, no, 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 you, you will not surely die. Now here's the temptation. For God knows, okay, he's holding out on you. God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. What's the temptation? Be like God. Up to this point in the narrative, God spoke, said it was good. God spoke, said it was good. God's in control. God's making everything. God's creating things. God says, here's what's good. Here's what's good. Here's what's good. And the enemy comes along and says, eat of this fruit. And now that responsibility will be yours. 
And if God says it's good, but you want to say that it's not good, you get to do that now. Do you see that's, that's, uh, that's idolatry? It's the de-godding of God. That's what this temptation is. That God no longer will have the ability, the right, the authority to tell me what to do. I'll be like God. That phrase, knowing good and evil, means I'll be able to decide what's good, what's, what's evil. And again, let's make the application again. It sounds awfully like our own day. Because the nature of sin hasn't changed. So, the Bible says she started to really look at it. And she saw that it was, tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes. It's, it's, it's got an appealing appearance, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and that they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So first of all, we noted the deceitfulness of the first rebellion, that it begins with the foolish notion that you can de-God God and become God. That's not ever going to happen. And then secondly, where we'll pick up today, is let's look at the initial consequences of the first rebellion. You know, the serpent said, hey, your eyes will be open, you'll be like God. That's what he said. Let's take a moment to look at what actually happened, the initial consequences of the first rebellion. Rebellion. Verse 17 and 18 of chapter 2 again. When did God say that they would surely die? In the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now quickly, time out. If they're going to surely die, how are they sewing fig leaves together and doing all this? They're still breathing and their hearts are still beating. Was God not speaking the truth? No, they did surely die. They're, a, they're eventually going to die physically. It's just a matter of time now. And it sounds like, you've read Genesis, right? It sounds like these folks live a long time. You've got these folks up into 700, 800 years, and then, and, and, but it always ends the same way. So-and-so lived however many years, and then what? And then he died. So yeah, physical death is coming. It's inevitable now. But when God said, you shall surely die, he meant what he said in that day. And, and, and they experienced what we may call spiritual death. What does spiritual death look like? It looks like this. God came near and they fled. They are afraid of God and they don't want anything to do with God. That is spiritual death. Completely insensitive to the things of God. Completely, uh, completely blaming everybody else for all their problems. No responsibility to themselves. So let's just look at a couple of these initial consequences. The first one is spiritual death. Look what happens. Verse 8, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Initial consequence number one is Adam and Eve tried to fix the problem themselves. It says, They sewed fig leaves together. And made themselves loincloths. Again, if you ask 10 people anywhere on the planet today, if you go to any continent, you ask 10 people, how do you get to heaven? About nine of them will say, in some way, be a good person. It's still convinced that there's something we can do to fix the problem. We said this last week, repeat it because I think it bears repeating. One, most people don't know what the real problem is. That's why we get all sorts of solutions that are given our way. 
Government will fix it. Hey, newsflash, they're not fixing it. Government's not going to fix the problems. Economics will fix it. Guess what? Economics not fixing it. Yeah, uh, improved health care will fix it. No. The problem is sin. That's the problem. Then, if you just get the small percentage of people who recognize the real problem, the follow-up to that is, unfortunately, a large percentage of that group of people will say, we can fix it ourselves. You see, that's what they tried to do. They sewed fig leaves together. It's like when my children make a mess at the house, uh, smearing uh, jelly all over the table when they try to make a peanut butter and jelly and this, that, or the other. They try to clean it up, and it just makes it worse. Now it's not jelly on the table, it's jelly on the wall. It's jelly everywhere. They're making it worse. And then they don't want anything to do with God. But it gets even worse than that. Their relationship with God is fractured, and that leads to their relationship with one another being fractured. It sounds like a long time ago, all of a sudden, the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. That's what it used to be pre-fall. Look what it is now post-fall. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? You want an interesting uh, Bible fact? That's the most frequent question that God speaks in the Scripture. And I want you to just think about the implications of the question for a moment. Where are you? It's the same question he asked Elijah. You remember when Elijah's in the cave, scared to death, and he thinks they're all going to come and kill him? And God comes along and says in that, remember this, the still, small voice? What are you doing where you are? Hey, hey, what if we asked that question of us this morning? What if God drew near to you and just whispered this simple question? It's a simple question, isn't it? What are you doing where you are? Do you know what? Most people can't answer that question. It's going through life, just trying to do something. I mean, I don't really know. What are you doing where you are? What are you doing in your family? What are you doing where you are in your church? What are you doing in your community? Where are you? Do you have an answer to that question this morning? You know where they were? Hiding. Ashamed. They're hiding in self-righteousness. That's where most people are today. They got their silly little fig leaves. We don't call them fig leaves anymore. We don't use fig leaves. We use finances or we use good works or we use a thousand other things, a relationship or of some other false hope. So God comes along and says, where are you? God doesn't ask where they are because he doesn't know. They don't know where they are. And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? It sounds like parents and children, doesn't it? The children can't keep up fast enough to outsmart the one who's much wiser. The children. Did I say it right? Did I say parents? No. You knew what I meant. (laughs) Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Now, that's a simple question, isn't it? I want you to, here's the question. Did you eat of the tree that I told you not to eat? And you notice Adam doesn't answer the question. It reminds me of my children again. Did you do what I told you not to do? And then they'll start talking about something else. Notice another initial consequence of the fall is that the fallen blame somebody else for what they've done. Look what Adam says. The man said, verse 12, who's speaking? The man. Who does he blame? First two words out of his mouth. What's he say? The woman. It's getting hot in here, isn't it? 
Who does the husband blame? His wife. The man will leave his mother and father and hold fast to his wife. That's the picture. Hold fast. Fall, you know what the picture is? He's shoving her away. It's her fault. Here's the picture. Pre-fall. The man will hold fast to his wife. Now he's shoving her away. And he begins to say every problem he's got, her fault. The more things change, the more they stay the same. He's blaming her now. And let's read the whole statement because uh, he's blaming somebody else too. The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. So it's her fault. It's not my fault. Did you eat of the tree of the garden that I told you not to eat? Here's Here's a simple answer. Yes. But he can't bring himself to say it, can he? That's why it says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Do you know what the poor in spirit say when they are standing before the Lord and the Lord, with the conviction of the word of God, comes along and says, did you sin? Do you know what the poor in spirit say? Yes, I sinned. But Adam can't bring himself to say it. He says, no, no, that's not really my fault. And he begins to self-justify his actions. And I'm telling you what, that is the key characteristic of the fallen self-justification. It's not my fault. Somebody else's fault. Their fault. So on and so forth. It's anybody's fault but my own. Now, maybe the woman will do a little bit better. So God finishes talking to her and then he, to him, then gives her an opportunity. What's God after? He's after repentance. And they can't do it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? What is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. So she doesn't say it's her fault. Somebody tricked me. Somebody pulled one over on me. You read it back over here. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that was like the eyes of the tree was good for food, she took of it. She took it. The serpent didn't tie her down, force her to take a bite, right? So she took it. And as they say, Adam blamed Eve, Eve blamed the serpent, and the serpent didn't have a leg to stand on. The Lord God said to the serpent. So uh, he's going to talk to her. So do you see one of the initial consequences, the initial consequences of the fall? They try to fix it themselves. They blame each other. I mean, it's, just, it's ruined everything. But do you see in the text an explanation for what's happened? You see it in your own heart, don't we? I know I do. This jump to self-rationalize, self-justify, blame somebody else. These are the major barriers between us and reconciliation. That's why God's come, by the way. He's come to reconcile them. They just can't bring themselves to be honest. Let's do number three quickly. The explicit curses that God pronounces. The explicit curses God pronounces. Read with me, beginning in verse 14. Then the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I think this is a a scriptural justification for us to hate all snakes. It's okay to do so, right? Here's the important part. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing, and pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed it is the ground because of you, and pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles 
it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The explicit curses that God pronounces. Let's start, first of all, with, with the, uh, the woman, because part of this seems confusing. Part of it's really obvious, and then part of it seems confusing. The obvious part. I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. I've been in the delivery room three times. That's a true statement. It's going to be painful. And uh, less, less clear part is the next one. It says, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. That's confusing. What does that mean? Well, when you come to interpret Scripture, the wise thing to start with is, is there a familiar phrase in the surrounding context that helps you understand what that is saying? And in this case, the answer is, what do you think? Yes, good. Genesis 4, 7. God's going to say the very same thing, and what He says to Cain is a little clearer, so when we understand what He says to Cain, we'll be able to go back to what He said to Eve, and it'll be a little bit easier to understand. You remember this is when uh, Cain's uh, offering was been rejected from the Lord. He's not yet murdered Abel. He's kind of hanging in the balance. The anger's raging in his heart. Look what it says, verse 7. God's saying to him, If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching out the door. Listen to the statement. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. You see, he says the same thing. So what's, what's he saying? He's telling Cain that there's something going on in his heart. Sin's desire is to be over you, but God says you've got to rule over it. So there's a statement of conflict, tension, animosity. Now go back to Eve's statement. What's God saying? Now, here's how marriage was. Man shall leave his mother and father, hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one. They're naked and unashamed. Here's how it is now. Your desire will be for him. His desire will be to rule over you. So in the fallen world, it's very easy for marriage to just become this unending conflict. Now let me just ask real fast for those who are married and in attendance uh, this morning. How's it going in your house? I'm talking about when nobody else is around. Which of these pictures is it? Is it a 224, Genesis 224 picture? Or is it a Genesis 3, 16 picture? It says, your desire shall be for your husband. It's, it's talking about this, uh, this internal desire. It, uh, this, I'm going to shoot straight with you. He's saying it, your desire is going to be to sort of manipulate him, to control him. That's fallen, that's fallen sinful wife now, is I'm going to enter this marriage and, then, and I'm going to run this show. And then the flip side is, when it says, he shall rule over you, the, the, the language is talking about he, he's got kind of a, 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 a physical strength. He's, he's stronger physically than, than you are. And now it's just gonna, it's just gonna, it's just gonna be sinful, fallen, and not very fun. He's saying marriage needs to be redeemed. He says this is how it's gonna be now. And in marriage after marriage after marriage, that's what the scene is. Man will walk in and say, She's trying to control me. And then the wife will walk in and say, He he threatens me, or he, he, he's trying to control me. Now, does marriage work? Here's, here's the question. Does marriage work by him running the show or her running the show? Answer, 
It's not going to work either one of those ways. Here's how it works. By both of them submitting and saying, you run this show. <laughs> you do this. See, it's got to be both now. Let's, let's get a little Ephesians 5, Bible teaching. It does say, wives, submit to your husbands as unto the Lord. And then five verses later, here's what it says. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, in that picture, who's strong-arming the other? Neither one. They're both submitted unto the Lord. The husband said, I'm going to picture Christ. What does Christ do? He loves his bride, cherishes his bride, protects his bride, provides for his bride. That's what a, that's what a husband does. And so um, let me tell you what one great theologian said. He said, if a husband comes along and says that his wife's not being obedient to Ephesians, where it says wives should submit to, to their husbands as, a, as unto the Lord, he's just giving you a confession that he's not been obedient to Ephesians 5, where it says husbands ought to love their wives as Christ loves the church. Marriage has to be redeemed because here's part of the curse. That's the curse, explicit curse given to, to the woman. And then, hey, men, that ground's not just going to produce fruit for you anymore. The unfortunate thing is, is that when he ate of the one tree he wasn't supposed to eat from, he lost a thousand trees that he could eat from. And that's the tragedy of all sin. It's not just what the, uh, the short-term effects, it's the long-term consequences. That's number four. The long-term effects of the rebellion. The big question was this. When God comes after what they've done, what is he going to do with them now? Now here's gospel good news. Because I'll tell you this, Genesis 3, verse 10, could have easily said, and God just wiped them off the face of the earth. The Bible would have been easy to study at that point, right? Just three short little, little chapters. But that's not what happens. Look with me in verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. And this starts what's going to continue as we study through the Bible. They're spiritually dead. they got no more spiritual sight. And so from here on out, God's going to have to teach them what they can't see spiritually by giving them object lessons that they can see with their physical eyes that still work but are not going to work eternally. They're spiritually dead, so if God's going to teach them spiritual truth, now we've got to teach them in a physical way. And do you see what object lesson number one is? Let's look at it, verse 21. If you read it carefully, you see the whole gospel here. The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. They had sewed fig leaves together. God says that's not good enough. Some gospel good news. Our good works aren't good enough. But God says, you do need to be covered. I'll do the covering. You, we talk about being clothed in the righteousness of Christ, right? And this is a picture of it. But in order for them to be clothed with garments made of skin, something else had to happen. And that's that something had to die. You, you don't take garments of skin off something and it just go about its merry way. No, it bleeds and it dies. So what God's teaching us here from the get-go is, in order for your sinful self to be covered, some substitute has to be killed 
shed its blood for you to be covered. He shall bruise your head. You shall bruise his heel. That's what was spoken to the, to the serpent. There is a serpent skull crusher. There is a curse bearer. There is a sacrifice. There is one who shed his blood. And you know what? He can give you a better marriage. A marriage that does not revolve around blaming each other in an endless struggle over who's in control. And he can give you a better home life. One where the children aren't killing each other, as we see in Genesis 4. And he can also give you joy as you work the ground by the sweat of your brow, wherever you may work. But he's come to do more than all of those things. Best of all, he can make it to where you no longer hide from the voice of God. Instead, you'll run to that voice. And that voice will drown out all the deceptive whispers of the serpent. And you can enjoy what was lost, fellowship with your Creator. And from the get-go, do you see God starts to talk about Him? He's coming. He's coming. He's going to be born of a woman. That's what He said. To, you're going to multiply in childbirth, but I'm going to put enmity between your seed and your offspring. So He's saying there's an offspring of the woman is going to come, and He's going to crush the serpent's head. And he did come. And you know, Jesus, I'll tell you what, he doesn't waste words. Do you remember this? Because here's the scene that he's got at the Last Supper, right before he's crucified. He uses two words, and they're not words he just chooses out of the blue. He's talking about his body that's going to be crushed. At the, at the Passover feast, at the Last Supper, when, when the Passover feast, its, it's understanding is changing from uh, Exodus to now Christ and the cross. And he's sitting there with his disciples. And he says, I've longed to sit down and eat this with you. He's been longing from eternity to, to, to do this. And then he takes the bread and he says, this is my body. It's crushed for you. And do you remember what he said? Two words. Take and what? Eat. You, you, you remember. He doesn't just choose those words half-heartedly. The woman took the fruit and she ate. So the object lessons are going to continue on down the line to the Last Supper when he says, now this is my body. You take of it and you eat. In order to destroy what Eve had done in the garden. And now, for everybody on the planet, they live either rooted in the garden of rebellion or in the upper room of reconciliation. Christ has come. He's the God who did not crush the rebels. He's the God who was crushed for the rebels. That's the gospel of our salvation. I want you to stand with me, and we're going to pray together. And next week, we'll keep up on the storyline about a God who makes his own agreements. Would you bow your heads with me? Ask a simple question before our invitation. Are you a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you put your faith and your trust in Him? Are the things that He says are true for a Christian's life true in your life? And the first clear marker we get is blessed are the poor in spirit.
When I ask a question, how do you know you're going to go to heaven? What is your answer? I don't want to put words into your mouth, but according to the scripture, the answer should sound something like this. I'm going to be with God in heaven for eternity on the basis of absolutely no merit of my own. Not my good works, but on the basis of my faith in Jesus. That his death on the cross purchased my redemption. Instead of God crushing Adam and Eve and all their descendants, he crushed Christ as punishment for the rebellion, even though he was totally innocent. And now I believe to use the metaphor of Genesis 3, the Lord God has covered me by the Lamb of God's death. I'm covered by the righteousness of Christ. Father, I pray, I pray in Jesus' name that you'd use the Word of God to convince us of the truth of what you're like, who you are, what you require. So it will be blessedly obvious to us that we are poor in spirit, but rich in Christ. Use this time of invitation for us to think carefully about vitally important things. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.